Chapter Two of Scenes from Sketches by Boz. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Yearsley. Sketches by Boz by Charles Dickens. Illustrations by George Cruikshank. Chapter Two of Scenes. The Streets. Night. But the streets of London to be beheld in the very height of their glory should be seen on a dark dull murky winter's night when there is just enough damp gently stealing down to make the pavement greasy without cleansing it of any of its impurities and when the heavy lazy mist which hangs over every object makes the gas lamps look brighter and the brilliantly lighted shops more splendid from the contrast they present to the darkness around all the people who are at home on such a night as this seem disposed to make themselves as snug and comfortable as possible, and the passengers in the streets have excellent reason to envy the fortunate individuals who are seated by their own firesides. In the larger and better kind of streets, dining-parlour curtains are closely drawn, kitchen fires blaze brightly up, and savoury steams of hot dinners salute the nostrils of the hungry wayfarer as he plods wearily by the area railings in the suburbs the muffin boy rings his way down the little street much more slowly than he is wont to do for mrs macklin of number four has no sooner opened her little street door and screamed out muffins with all her might than mrs walker at number five puts her head out of the parlour window and screams muffins too, and Mrs. Walker has scarcely got the words out of her lips, then Mrs. Peplow over the way lets loose Master Peplow, who darts down the street with a velocity which nothing but buttered muffins in perspective could possibly inspire, and drags the boy back by main force, whereupon Mrs. Macklin and Mrs. Walker, just to save the boy trouble, and to say a few neighbourly words to Mrs. Peplow at the same time, run over the way and buy their muffins at Mrs. Peplow's door, when it appears from the voluntary statement of Mrs. Walker that her kettle's just a boiling and the cups and saucers ready laid, and that, as it was just such a wretched night out of doors, she'd made up her mind to have a nice hot comfortable cup of tea, a determination at which, by the most singular coincidence, the other two ladies had simultaneously arrived. After a little conversation about the wretchedness of the weather and the merits of tea, with a digression relative to the viciousness of boys as a rule, and the amiability of Master Peplow as an exception, Mrs. Walker sees her husband coming down the street, and, as he must want his tea, poor man, after his dirty walk from the docks, she instantly runs across, muffins in hand, and Mrs. Macklin does the same, and after a few words to Mrs. Walker, they all pop into their little houses, and slam their little street doors, which are not opened again for the remainder of the evening, except to the nine o'clock beer, who comes round with a lantern in front of his tray, and says, as he lends Mrs. Walker yesterday's tizer, that he's blessed if he can hardly hold the pot, much less feel the paper, for it's one of the bitterest nights he ever felt, except the night when the man was frozen to death in the brickfield. After a little prophetic conversation with the policeman at the street corner, touching a probable change in the weather and the setting in of a hard frost the nine o'clock beer returns to his master's house and employs himself for the remainder of the evening in assiduously stirring the tap-room fire 
and deferentially taking part in the conversation of the worthies assembled round it. The streets in the vicinity of the Marshgate and Victoria Theatre present an appearance of dirt and discomfort on such a night, which the groups who lounge about them in no degree tend to diminish. Even the little block-tin temple sacred to baked potatoes, surmounted by a splendid design in variegated lamps, looks less gay than usual, and as to the kidney-pie stand, its glory has quite departed. The candle in the transparent lamp, manufactured of oil-paper, embellished with characters, has been blown out fifty times, so the kidney-pie merchant, tired with running backwards and forwards to the next wine-vaults to get a light, has given up the idea of illumination in despair, and the only signs of his whereabout are the bright sparks of which a long irregular trail is whirled down the street every time he opens his portable oven to hand a hot kidney-pie to a customer. Flatfish, oyster, and fruit-vendors linger hopelessly in the kennel, in vain endeavouring to attract customers, and the ragged boys who usually disport themselves about the streets stand crouched in little knots in some projecting doorway, or under the canvas blind of a cheesemonger's, where great flaring gas-lights, unshaded by any glass, display huge piles of bright red and pale yellow cheeses, mingled with little fivepenny dabs of dingy bacon, various tubs of weekly dorset, and cloudy rolls of best fresh. Here they amuse themselves with theatrical converse, arising out of their last half-price visit to the Victoria Gallery, admire the terrific combat, which is nightly encored, and expatiate on the inimitable manner in which Bill Thompson can come the double monkey, or go through the mysterious involutions of a sailor's hornpipe. It is nearly eleven o'clock, and the cold, thin rain which has been drizzling so long is beginning to pour down in good earnest. The baked potato man has departed. The kidney-pie man has just walked away with his warehouse on his arm. The cheesemonger has drawn in his blind, and the boys have dispersed. The constant clicking of patterns on the slippy and uneven pavement, and the rustling of umbrellas, as the wind blows against the shop windows, bear testimony to the inclemency of the night. And the policeman, with his oilskin cape buttoned closely round him, seems, as he holds his hat on his head, and turns round to avoid the gust of wind and rain, which drives against him at the street corner, to be very far from congratulating himself on the prospect before him. The little chandler's shop, with the cracked bell behind the door, whose melancholy tinkling has been regulated by the demand for quarterns of sugar and half-ounces of coffee, is shutting up. The crowds which have been passing to and fro during the whole day are rapidly dwindling away, and the noise of shouting and quarrelling which issues from the public houses is almost the only sound that breaks the melancholy stillness of the night. There was another, but it has ceased, that wretched woman with the infant in her arms, round whose meagre form the remnant of her own scanty shawl is carefully wrapped, has been attempting to sing some popular ballad, in the hope of wringing a few pence from the compassionate passer-by. A brutal laugh at her weak voice is all she has gained. The tears fall thick and fast down her own pale face. The child is cold and hungry, and its low, half-stifled wailing adds to the misery of its wretched mother, as she moans aloud and sinks despairingly down 
on a cold, damp doorstep. Singing, how few of those who pass such a miserable creature as this think of the anguish of heart, the sinking of soul and spirit, which the very effort of singing produces, bitter mockery, disease, neglect, and starvation, faintly articulating the words of the joyous ditty that has enlivened your hours of feasting and merriment, God knows how often. It is no subject of jeering. The weak, tremulous voice tells a fearful tale of want and famishing, and the feeble singer of this roaring song may turn away only to die of cold and hunger. One o'clock. Parties returning from the different theatres foot it through the muddy streets. Cabs, hackney-coaches, carriages and theatre omnibuses roll swiftly by. Watermen with dim, dirty lanterns in their hands and large brass plates upon their breasts, who have been shouting and rushing about for the last two hours, retire to their watering-houses, to solace themselves with the creature comforts of pipes and pearl. The half-price pit-and-box frequenters of the theatres throng to the different houses of refreshment, and chops, kidneys, rabbits, oysters, stout cigars, and goes innumerable, are served up amidst a noise and confusion of smoking, running, knife-clattering, and waiter-chattering, perfectly indescribable. The more musical portions of the play-going community betake themselves to some harmonic meeting. As a matter of curiosity, let us follow them thither for a few moments. In a lofty room of spacious dimensions are seated some eighty or a hundred guests, knocking little pewter measures on the tables and hammering away with the handles of their knives, as if they were so many trunk-makers. They are applauding a glee, which has just been executed by the three professional gentlemen at the top of the centre table, one of whom is in the chair, the little pompous man, with the bald head just emerging from the collar of his green coat. The others are seated on either side of him, the stout man with the small voice, and the thin-faced dark man in black. The little man in the chair is a most amusing personage. Such condescending grandeur, and such a voice. Base, as the young gentleman near us with the blue stock forcibly remarks to his companion. Base, I believe you. He can go down lower than any man, so low sometimes that you can't hear him. And so he does, to hear him growling away gradually lower and lower down, till he can't get back again, is the most delightful thing in the world, and it is quite impossible to witness unmoved the impressive solemnity with which he pours forth his soul in My Arts in the Islands, or The Brave Old Hoak. The stout man is also addicted to sentimentality, and warbles Fly, fly from the world, my Bessie, with me, or some such song with ladylike sweetness, and in the most seductive tones imaginable. "'Pray give me your orders, gentlemen, pray give me your orders,' says the pale-faced man with the red head, and demands for goes of gin and goes of brandy, and pints of stout, and cigars of peculiar mildness, are vociferously made from all parts of the room. The professional gentlemen are in the very height of their glory, and bestow condescending nods, or even a word or two of recognition, on the better-known frequenters of the room, in the most bland and patronising manner possible. The little round-faced man with the small brown surtout, white stockings and shoes, is in the comic line. 
the mixed air of self-denial and mental consciousness of his own powers with which he acknowledges the call of the chair is particularly gratifying gentlemen says the little pompous man accompanying the word with a knock of the president's hammer on the table gentlemen allow me to claim your attention our friend mr smuggins will oblige bravo shout the company and smuggins after a considerable quantity of coughing by way of symphony and a most facetious sniff or two which afford general delight sings a comic song with a falderal tolderal chorus at the end of every verse much longer than the verse itself it is received with unbounded applause and after some aspiring genius has volunteered a recitation and failed dismally therein the little pompous man gives another knock and says gentlemen we will attempt a glee if you please this announcement calls forth tumultuous applause and the more energetic spirits express the unqualified approbation it affords them by knocking one or two stout glasses off their legs a humorous device but one which frequently occasions some slight altercation when the form of paying the damage is proposed to be gone through by the waiter scenes like these are continued until three or four o'clock in the morning and even when they close fresh ones open to the inquisitive novice but as a description of all of them however slight would require a volume the contents of which however instructive would be by no means pleasing we make our bow and drop the curtain the end of chapter two of scenes from sketches by boz